2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of The Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the Attorney General Jeff Sessions' announcement that the Department of Justice is going to pull federal grants to sanctuary cities that continue to break the law, saying... Uh, They make our nation less safe. We'll find out what the attorney general can and cannot do and whether or not charges from these sanctuary cities uh, that the um, effort by the attorney general, our efforts are unconstitutional. We'll find out whether or not that's true, what the Constitution, if anything, uh, has to say about it. We're also going to talk with Aaron Damiani. He's the author of The Good of Giving Up, Discovering the Freedom of Lent. And we'll talk with um, Bill Gibbons, who's the superintendent of Cornerstone Christian Academy. It's one of the Christian schools that we're highlighting in these uh, weeks and encouraging you to listen in and to check out our listener savings page. It's just simply that, com, And there you can find uh, discounts on tuitions and, quite frankly, other savings as well, but tuitions on the schools that we've been discussing here on the program for the last uh, several weeks and for the remainder of this week. Bill Gibbons will join us at about 5.30 today. Will President Trump moved today to unravel a host of energy regulations that were imposed by his predecessor, targeting in particular the Obama administration's signature program that was intended to curb carbon emissions But blasted by Republicans for hurting the already struggling coal industry with a sweeping executive order signed at EPA headquarters. The president initiated an immediate review of the Clean Power Plan, which restricts greenhouse gas emissions at coal fired power plants. Surrounded by coal miners, the president described that plan as a crushing attack on workers and vowed to nix job-killing regulations. We're going to have safety. We're going to have clean water. We're going to have clean air. But so many regulations are unnecessary. So many are job-killing, he said. Well, Trump added that together we are going to start a new energy revolution. Speaking earlier with uh, Fox & Friends, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt said the president is setting a new course that is both pro-jobs and pro-environment. It's going to create jobs in the oil and gas sector, he said, for too long over the last several years, you've had certain industries, certain sectors of our economy that were within the crosshairs of the EPA. And he added that's not going to happen anymore. Well, not surprisingly, there has been pushback from Democrats. It was swift. The House Majority Leader, Nancy Pelosi, she blasted the administration's spiteful assault on the clean power plan and declared it would not bring coal jobs back. President Trump, she said, and congressional Republicans' contempt for the clean air, clean water, and our clean energy Future endangers the health of our children and the strength of our economy. Well, the Clean Power Plan has been the subject of long running legal challenges by Republican led states and allies of the oil, coal, and gas industries. The President's overall executive order goes beyond that program and will suspend, rescind, or flag for review more than a half dozen measures in an effort to boost domestic energy production in the form of fossil fuels. In addition to pulling back from the Clean Power Plan, the administration is lifting a 14 month old moratorium on new coal leases on federal lands. The Obama administration had imposed a three-year moratorium on new federal coal leases in January of 2016, arguing that the $1 billion a year, that's billion with a B, uh, billion-dollar-a-year program must be modernized to ensure a fair financial return to taxpayers and address climate change. Meanwhile, the specter of another government shutdown is emerging on Capitol Hill with concerns that Republican leaders have failed to unite the party last week in the Obamacare overhaul effort. And that will likewise struggle to finalize a spending package before the April 28th deadline. Oklahoma GOP uh, Re- uh, Representative Tom Cole said that we should not uh, take things for granted, especially after what happened last week. The last thing we need is a self-inflicted crisis. There, frankly, isn't much time. And again, April 28th is the deadline. Voters blamed congressional Republicans for the last shutdown. That was in 2013. They engaged in a budget standoff with Senate Democrats and President Obama over Obamacare funding. Much of the federal government shuttered from the 1st to the 16th of October during the a fight driven by Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and the Conservative Heritage Foundation, both influential in sinking House Speaker Paul Ryan's Obamacare overhaul bill as well. To avoid a repeat this year, Congress is eyeing a short-term measure known as a continuing resolution, something we were assured would not be the case under a uh, Republican administration and uh, predominance in the House and Senate. This could bundle the roughly 12 spending bills together, despite Ryan. Uh, Paul Ryan's pledging last year to try to end that practice. Well, Representative Cole, a member of the House Appropriations Committee, which has jurisdiction over the spending bills that fund all federal agencies, voiced concern about that approach and said these bills should have been done last year. But this year's spending bill standoff is now emerging as a sequel to the clash over the Obamacare replacement, with Ryan again having to juggle the interests of the chamber's moderate Republicans with those of the ultra-conservative House Freedom Caucus. About 20 of the Freedom Caucus's roughly 35 members opposed Ryan in President Trump's Obama care overhaul plan, arguing it didn't fully repeal and replace the struggling 2010 health care law. Ryan and Trump got no support from House Democrats to get the requisite 2016, or rather 216, House votes to pass their plan, which they scrapped on Friday, at least for now. Uh, In this year's budget battle, Ryan will likely need Democrat support, which will be tough to get if Republicans try to use the package to defund Planned Parenthood to seek spending cuts elsewhere. All this comes before debate even begins over the budget plan for next year, which Trump wants to include billions more for the military and a U.S.-Mexico border wall. And any compromise on spending cuts will almost certainly spark opposition from the Freedom uh, Freedom Caucus. Republicans have always needed help from the Democrats, says Maryland Representative Steny Hoyer, the House's second-ranking Democrat on Tuesday, they never came up with uh, uh, they never come up uh, came up with uh, the, the number of votes that were needed. The House now has two hundred and thirty seven Republicans, one hundred and ninety three Democrats, and five vacant seats, which means Ryan needs two hundred and sixteen votes to pass legislation. The Republican-led Senate also is behind on its spending bills, having largely been consumed by confirmation hearings for the Trump administration and now getting the votes to install Judge Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, which the Democrats have promised, at least uh, many, uh, to filibuster. The budget problem is further compounded by Congress is taking a roughly two-week recess starting Friday. House and Senate appropriators purportedly uh, will have a bill ready in the final week of April, which doesn't leave much time before the deadline. Uh, House Speaker Ryan signaled Tuesday that congressional Republicans would still revisit Obamacare, suggesting some foes of the last bill have offered to compromise by making clear that the more immediate focus is on tax reform and other big policy issues. You want to get this right, he says. We're going to keep talking to each other, but I'm not going to put a timeline on it, which did not serve him well this first time around. Meanwhile, as uh, the 15th of April is approaching, taxpayers spend about 6.1 billion hours a year just to comply with the federal tax code. That's according to experts at a tax foundation event earlier this week. Pete Sepp, president of the National Taxpayers Union, said the tax compliance costs taxpayers about $234 billion a year in direct costs and lost Productivity. The problem is the status quo, thinking that, well, if we don't do tax reform this year, it will just be that bad, Sepp said. No, the status quo is not the status quo. It's going to get worse. Well, the paperwork uh, burden inventory at the Office of Management and Budget related to Treasury is expected to rise by another two billion hours in the next few years, he said. One third added to that. We're looking at tax compliance costs of north of four hundred billion dollars a year. He admitted that the failure of the Republican health care Reform bill with its projected deficit reductions will make it more difficult for Republicans to pass a tax reform bill. This is the important point right now. It's an especially important one in this current post Obamacare repeal environment. We now have about a trillion dollars of baseline problems now that we didn't um, think we would have before assuming Obamacare was going to be repealed. So a tough road to hoe, as they say, for the Republicans moving forward. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Toyota of Vancouver. Up next, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky. We're going to talk about sanctuary cities and what the attorney general says he's intending to do to prevent them from uh, receiving federal funds. We'll find out what he can, cannot do and what the Constitution says about the whole thing. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Justice Department's threat Monday to pull funding from local and state governments that refuse to comply with federal immigration enforcement laws drew a defiant response from big city mayors. Attorney General Jeff Sessions took to the podium at the White House at a press briefing to fire the broadside at cities that refuse to Uh, To notify immigration and custom enforcement when they have illegal immigrants in custody. Judging from the response from mayors uh, of the nation's largest cities, the Trump administration has a fight on its hands. For example, New York City uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, he downplayed the significance of Sessions' message and called it saber-rattling. Los Angeles Mayor uh, Eric Garcetti. Uh, He said taking federal funding from the city would be um, unconstitutional. Well, members of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, including the chief executive from Los Angeles, Dallas, New Orleans, and more than a dozen other mayors and police chiefs from all around the country are going to meet on Wednesday with the Department of Homeland Security Secretary, General John Kelly, to hear firsthand how the administration plans on administering uh, these new standards. Meanwhile, Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, former chief of staff for President Obama during his first term, has been consistently outspoken spoken on the issue and the Boston mayor, Marty Walsh, he called the threat destructive and irresponsible. Well, here to talk with us about uh, what the uh, Trump administration is attempting to do is Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for joining us.
3: Sure. Thanks for having me back.
2: Well, this whole idea of a sanctuary policy is meant to be humane, but in a piece that you wrote um, that appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, you make the point that that's, that has not, in fact, been the case. Well,
3: no, because, in fact, what these cities are doing is they're providing sanctuaries for criminal illegal aliens. And I don't mean people who uh, are simply here illegally, but I'm talking about illegal aliens who commit all kinds of crimes, including violent crimes. And, and in fact, um, Uh, Attorney General Sessions uh, on Monday when when he made this announcement mentioned the fact that the city of Denver in December um, released a man, uh, an illegal alien, that uh, had prior criminal uh, convictions. And the uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement Service actually had sent a detainer warrant to Denver asking them – to uh, hold him until they could pick him up. Denver refused to do that. And uh, last week, he, the same man, illegal alien, was uh, arrested for murder and robbery of a man at a light rail station.
2: So how is it that states and, and localities justify this practice when we're talking about criminals that put their citizens uh, at risk? How how do they explain that?
3: Well, they try to say that, uh, well, it'll make crime worse because they believe that um, if they don't have a sanctuary policy, then illegal immigrants uh, will be uh, too scared to report crimes. But uh, when someone is murdered, (laughs) uh, I I don't think that goes unreported. And, in fact, um, if you look at the history the criminal histories of illegal aliens who are actually in uh, prison in the United States, in both federal, uh, state, and local prisons, um, they—the uh, worst of the worst of these illegal aliens—commit crime after crime after crime. They, they engage in repeated criminal behavior, and sanctuary policies uh, simply mean that uh, instead of being deported, so they can't keep. Uh, engaging in that kind of uh, criminal behavior, they will be uh, in the country, they will remain here, and they can keep victimizing uh, the residents of those cities.
2: Now, many mayors and others are arguing that sanctuary cities, uh, that uh, coming down on sanctuary cities actually violates the Tenth Amendment. So laws that would require them to cooperate with the federal government would violate the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. Your response to um, to that charge? Uh The 10th Amendment
3: reserves to the state's um, uh, powers not specifically delegated to the federal government. And the reason the 10th Amendment doesn't apply, and I'm a big supporter of the 10th Amendment, is that there is no authority over immigration reserved to the states. This is one of the few areas where the Constitution gives 100% of the authority over immigration to the federal government. And and so, for example, uh, right now, uh, immigration law, Uh, prohibits local jurisdictions from banning their police officers from contacting the federal government if they want to check on uh, the immigration status of someone they've arrested or if they want to notify the federal government that someone they've arrested is an illegal alien. Uh, States uh, and localities can't pass an ordinance like that. It's a violation of federal immigration law and that is fully enforceable um, because states don't have a right to violate federal law when it comes to immigration matters.
2: So while they're heark- hearkening the uh, 10th Amendment, the Constitution does explicitly give Congress complete authority yep. over immigration in Article I, Section 8, Clause 4, that, as you pointed out, declares the Congress shall have no power to establish and uniform rule of naturalization there's more to it but that's an abbreviation
3: yeah but that and and that provision has been upheld uh, numerous times by the courts in, including the US Supreme Court and the conclusion has all been the same the federal government has full authority over this area, and not uh, the states. And look, for, for people should think about it. It makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. It would be complete chaos in this country if we had a national immigration policy, or or but, but then border states like Texas and California said, "Oh well, we're going to have our own immigration policy, and we're going to decide who we let in across the southern border." I mean, that, you, you you just can't have that.
2: Well, the attorney general um, has been accused of saber-rattling by uh, New York Mayor uh, Bill de Blasio. What can, in fact, the attorney general do um, by going to the federal court uh, with regard to these so-called sanctuary cities?
3: Well, there's two things he can do. What he announced on Monday was that um, the Justice Department has a little over $4 billion dollars that he gives out in discretionary discretionary, uh, grants. And so, in other words, local cities and towns can apply to justice to try to get these grants. Um, None of that money, according to General Sessions, is going to go to any city that has a sanctuary policy in place and that obstructs uh, immigration uh, enforcement. Um, He hasn't uh, said whether he will go to court. Uh, the way the Justice Department went to court in the 1960s and 1970s against um, local cities in the South that uh, were defying federal court orders and federal civil rights law. But he's got that option too. But, but he's starting off with cutting off their access to these discretionary grants uh, from the Justice Department.
2: Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, he said that uh, taking these federal funds from the city would be unconstitutional. Um, Is it unconstitutional to withhold federal funds from cities that uh, refuse to comply with federal law?
3: Well, it certainly isn't when it comes to these Justice Department grants. These are discretionary programs. The attorney general decides who should get the money. And I don't think any court anywhere would say that there's anything wrong with the attorney general not giving uh, these kind of grants to a city that is obstructing federal law enforcement uh, that that 's a losing case uh, for for any big city mayor to take on
2: um, in the article I made reference to that you wrote uh, back in two thousand and fifteen, you pointed out that a government accountability office report released in two thousand and five reviewed crimes committed by 55,322 immigrants who had entered the country illegally and were still illegally in the country at the time of their incarceration in federal or state prison or local jail during fiscal year 2003. And according to the GAO, uh, they had been arrested a total of 459,614 times, averaging about eight arrests each. They'd committed almost 700,000 criminal offenses, about 13 offenses um, each. What impact is... Uh, the refusal of these so-called sanctuary cities uh, to comply with federal authorities to try to protect its citizens from those who are engaged in violent crime, which is about, what, 15, 12 percent that we're talking about. Um, What impact is that having on these respective communities?
3: Well, it has a big impact because you you literally have hundreds of thousands of crimes that are being committed um, in these cities that would not occur if, uh, these cities do not have um, sanctuary policies and, and the most tragic example of that in, in recent days was remember two years ago uh, Kate Steinley, a young woman mm-hmm. in San Francisco was was murdered, shot by an illegal alien who had seven previous felonies he had been arrested by San Francisco authorities uh, immigration and customs knew about it and gave them a detainer warrant and asked them to hold him until federal authorities could come and and grab him so they could deport him to San Francisco because of its sanctuary policy, refused to do that, released this illegal alien, and shortly thereafter killed Kate Styling She would be alive today if it were not for San Francisco's sanctuary policy.
2: It's, it's unconscionable that this would continue, and there wouldn't be a hue and cry from the general public demanding uh, that their safety be put first. And we're talking about people who have been apprehended by local governments and the federal government wants to at least have the opportunity uh, to look at whether or not this individual poses a danger. Is there a, a public outcry or um, have sanctuary cities uh, leaders uh, so convince the people that this is a humane approach that people aren't uh, don't fully understand the cost?
3: No, actually, uh, Americans <laughs> uh, disagree with these city mayors and agree with General Sessions. Uh, Sessions actually cited a poll on Monday when he made this announcement in which 80% of Americans agree that when illegal aliens are arrested uh, in their cities, they should be turned over to immigration authorities. So Americans really understand why this is a problem. The, the, the odd thing is, why is it that the mayors of all these cities don't understand, or, or I guess don't care about the fact that they are in, in, endangering their residents?
2: Well, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing, but we'll continue to follow what happens next. Hans von Spakovsky, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, anytime. Appreciate it very much. Again, uh, Hans von Spakovsky, a senior legal fellow at the Mies uh, Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Up next, we're going to talk with author Aaron Damiani. He's the author of The Good of Giving Up. He's an Anglican priest. The t- subtitle of the book, Discovering the Freedom of Lent. That, when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, for many Christians, Lent may seem like an empty ritual that's reserved for, well, high church, an ancient practice that's out of step with our modern lives and whose definition is vague at best, but nothing could be further from the truth. Caught up in a microwave culture, few of us take the time to slow down and prepare our hearts to celebrate, feast, and exult in Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. And that time of preparation is at the very core of Lenten observance. Well, in The Good of Giving Up, Discovering the Freedom of Lent, my next guest, author and Anglican pastor Aaron Damiani, says that observing Lent is about more than giving things up. It's a springtime of the soul, a season of clearing to make room for new growth. He asserts that uh, we need more than a good Friday service, two days uh, in advance of getting into the state of mind and heart to celebrate Jesus' victory over death and hell. We can't prepare ourselves for Easter over the weekend. We need to walk a long pilgrimage to get ready well the result is that when the christian church weaves fasting prayer and generosity together over a period of several weeks individuals families and whole communities are impacted powerfully well the good of giving up is a comprehensive guide to both the history and how to do lent um as he explains, the season of Lent defends the, its theological legitimacy and guides readers uh, in its practice for both families and entire church congregations. Well, Aaron Damiani is the lead pastor of Emmanuel Anglican Church in Chicago. He holds a B.A. in pastoral theology from Moody Bible Institute and an M.A. in biblical exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School. After moving to Washington, D.C. in 2008, he was called to ministry while researching public policy at the Potomac Institute after being... Ordained as an Anglican priest and trained in urban church planning, he returned to Chicago with a vision to raise up a vibrant Anglican church. He joins us today to talk about his book, The Good of Giving Up, Discovering Freedom of Lent. Hey, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thanks for having me, Georgine.
2: You know, I appreciate that you uh, you understand that for a lot of people, Lent seems like something reserved for the high church denominations, but we're seeing more evangelical churches uh, engage in the practice uh, because it does provide an opportunity to prepare one's heart for uh, what is a celebration um, culminating in the resurrection. After we've uh, thought hard and long about the crucifixion,
4: that's right. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a growing need, I think, for people to embrace practices that are not just um, uh, about the mind, but also about the heart, which always has to involve the body. Um, we just we've just seen over and over again that um, you know the things that we do with our bodies have a big impact. On our souls, and so when uh, preparing for Easter and our walk with Christ impacts our appetites and impacts our pocketbooks um, and impacts, you know how how often we're paying attention to God. It it is amazing what happens. Um, I think we're, you know, our appetites in some ways are expanded to desire, the desire of the nations, the desire of our hearts, which is Jesus Christ, you know, not only crucified, but also resurrected.
2: You're quoted as saying, Lent is an ancient pilgrimage that the Lord uses to recapture our imagination of and renew our participation in the greatest story ever told. So Lent is really more than just giving up chocolate for a few weeks and going on a a, a regular way and about our business without giving much thought to uh, why we've decided to, uh, uh, to give something up.
4: That's right. That's right. And I think... Um, you know, it's, it, it can be an empty ritual. Some people have experienced uh, Lent as an empty ritual uh, that doesn't have a lot of purpose for them. But I think when we practice it, like the ancient church practiced it, it's very much like a, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. You know, when people go to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, they come back and they're like, the Bible came alive for me, the Gospel came alive for me. And um, they see everything in light of the gospel um, after, in many cases, after a trip to the Holy Land. And I think that's what Lent does. Lent's uh, a kind of a 40-day uh, trip to to the Holy Land where we are walking the steps of Christ. Uh, we're with Him in the wilderness. We're with Him at the cross. Um, we're, we're with Him in Gethsemane. We're, we're sort of in that struggle with Him. Um, along the way, we become like Him. We become close to Him, just like His disciples did. And man, when, you know, when the resurrection comes around, we're ready to rejoice with his disciples as well. Um, So it it can be, it's a really powerful thing when you see it in terms of a story Mm -hmm. that is true that you're entering.
2: Yeah. You write that no one is uh, being pressured into Lent to make God or themselves happy. Um, all were responding to a gracious, uh, ancient invitation to walk with Jesus Christ in a tangible way for 40 days. The people who said yes to this invitation had only grace and joy for those of us who said no. Maybe we should begin by talking about the ancient roots of this practice of Lent and how it began in the early Church.
4: Absolutely. You know, uh, we find that the practices of fasting, almsgiving, and prayer— um, date back to um, to the Jewish faith, to, pe- you know, before Christ, people following God. That was one, part of their rhythm. They would have seasons of fasting and seasons of feasting that would interlock. And um, Jesus himself uh, en- entered into this as an observant Jew um, and taught his disciples, uh, you know, not if, but when you give alms and when you fast and when you pray, here's how to do it in the spirit of the gospel. Uh, as we see in there in Matthew six, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and you know his disciples took took him up on it when he was uh, resurrected and ascended to the Father's right hand. The the early church, the disciples, and the in the early church that followed, uh, very quickly, wanted, you know they wanted to stay close to their Savior, and so in anticipation of Easter, they would fast, they'd pray, they'd give give their money away. Um, in different ways, in different times, in the in the church year, um, it was the practices were somewhat different in different parts of the Roman Empire because of persecution, but they found it really effective. People coming into the church from pagan backgrounds, an extremely effective uh, method for um, teaching people the way of Christ and growing their m- and maturity and getting them ready to be baptized. And so what happened is, um, after persecution, the leaders of the Church got together and started talking about, hey, what's been effective for you And shape, just like we still do today, Mm -hmm. what's been effective for you and your your, uh, congregation? And what they found was, wow, we're all doing this. Jesus taught us to do it. Let's all do one central practice together in anticipation of Easter. And so they formalized the practice of Lent um, several hundred years after Jesus, uh, uh, rose from the dead and, and ascended to his father's right hand, and then since then the, the church took it up as a as a, as a practice, um, and and now we see that it's, it's making a comeback, as it were, because people seeing how effective it is at becoming like Christ.
2: Yeah, uh, you write that when you finally took the plunge and learned that uh, Lent wasn't a forced march of works righteousness, but a good medicine for your autonomy, self-indulgence, spiritual independence, and the painful split between what I knew about God and what I experienced of Him. It became a, a transformative season in anticipation of Resurrection Sunday.
4: That's absolutely right. I was surprised, actually, uh, how, how, how much it impacted my my heart. It was really good, actually, I think, for me to see the difference between um, when I got uh, what, I, what I thought I wanted, which was a luxurious 10-day cruise with my new wife, um, and I compared how I felt on the other end of the 10 days of, of midnight chocolate bars and uh, scuba diving um, versus the joy that I observed in this new church that practiced Lent. Uh, you know, what I saw was that when, when, uh, when people observed Lent, what they were doing was they were actually giving more attention to their desires, and they were more joyful as a result because they were, um, instead of meeting every craving and, and squashing every hunger or thirst, what they would do is they would give those over to Jesus so that by the time Easter came around, they were, they were ready for a barnstorming celebration that Jesus had risen from the dead. So it was a really wonderful and freeing thing, for me to learn um, how to take my desires to Christ and celebrate together, um, you know, that He was risen from the dead with, with, uh, with a whole church full of people who are in that same spot.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You point out that um, Christians of all denominations, evangelicals, particularly millennials and younger pastors, are increasingly interested in the practice of, of Lent. Why do you think that's the case?
4: I think because uh, many of us are just hungry for roots—something that's tangible, that's deep, that's ancient—that um, that, that uh, in, in some ways is it, is sort of an anti-marketing campaign. We've been we've been um, sold our whole life, we've, we've listened to marketing pitches our whole life based on, um, you know, uh, our desires. And what I think what Lent is, is, is Lent comes in some ways, uh, it seems like maybe it's coming against our desires, but it's actually to recover our true desire for, um, for the, the bread of heaven, for Jesus Christ himself. And so I think it's, it's a, a very stabilizing thing for people to have an ancient practice that can not only tie them to the ancient church, but tie them to Jesus himself. And then tie them with other people, too. There's so many of us um, that are young pastors or uh, those in the millennial generation that feel totally disconnected, uh, disconnected from themselves, disconnected from, uh, from from any sense of family. Um, uh, and it, what Lent does is it sort of lashes you with the people of God, not only the people that you know that you're with in, in a local congregation, but also the global church. And I think mm-hmm. there's a desire to be connected globally as well.
2: We're talking about the book the Good of Giving Up Discovering the Freedom of Lent Aaron Damiano is uh, Damiani is my guest we're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments but do need to take a quick break you're listening to the Georgine Rice show
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 Kpdq.
2: We're back fifty minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Aaron Damiani. He is the author of the Good and Giving, The Good of Giving Up, Discovering the Freedom of Lent. Describe for us um, some of the disciplines of Lent that are relevant to all of us who are followers of Christ.
4: Yes. So you know, we what we find is in Lent, uh, we've got the three-stranded cord of um, of prayer, fasting, and alms giving. Um, you know, and very briefly, you know, what fasting is, is fasting is feasting on God. Uh, it's a concrete way to uh, to, go, to go without food, maybe for a meal or a couple of meals, um, as well as, you know, going without uh, perhaps dessert, without alcohol, something that we've come to maybe be dependent on too much. Um, and we're using that space to, to, to bring our hunger to God. Prayer, you know, is, is talking with God about what we're doing together, in the words of Dallas Willard and um, making space to listen to him and to speak to him. And almsgiving really is just good old-fashioned parting with our money on behalf uh, and out of love for our neighbor. So what happens is when you weave those together, it actually helps you realize how weak you are, how much you need Mm -hmm. God, because, you know, we all fail at these disciplines, and and they also reveal um, how grouchy we can get when we're hungry. and um, and so what what I've talked about in the book is that I, I actually talk about a fourth discipline, that of confession, confession of our sins, um, which is sort of woven into all three of the disciplines and um, are, you know, in, in some ways we, we have a more acute awareness of our need for confession because of those disciplines.
2: Well, I appreciate that you make the point that it's not just about depriving oneself of something you enjoy, but filling yes. that emptiness with something that provides real joy and satisfaction that we might miss if we're... Uh, failing to set aside a period of time to uh, contemplate and look forward to um, Resurrection Sunday.
4: That's exactly right. It is. Yeah. Again, it's it's a, in some ways a recovery of desire. Um, what mm. we what we do. What happens is when we when we meet all of our desires, uh, all of our cravings. As soon as we feel them, we stop feeling them. We we start to feel numb, and desire becomes need. The de- de- desire becomes dependence. And when we're following Jesus, He wants to restore us from the inside out desires included. And so, you know, Christians who follow Jesus are, are, are pe- the people of desire, people who are learning to desire again, people who are coming to, to grips with their deepest uh, hungers, which is a, a hunger for eternal life and a hunger to commune with Jesus Christ himself.
2: What is it like for families, churches to practice Lent together? It's one thing as an mm-hmm. individual— to determine, to purpose, that this is what I'm going to do over these 40 days. But what about doing that uh, as part of a community, whether that's a family or a church?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so, you know, the old saying of uh, you, can, you can go faster alone, um, but, um, but you're going to go further if you, if, if you don't go alone, even if it takes longer. And as similar is true for Lent. It's 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 very powerful when you're doing Lent as a family, and it's even more powerful when you're doing Lent as a local church. Um, and so, because of that, um, if you're just starting, it's you got to go slower. You got to give people an introduction and teach them about the history of it. And then, instead of an expectation, provide an invitation uh, to to practice it with you. I tell pastors that want to begin practicing Lent with their churches. Hey, don't uh, don't expect people to come around the first year. Maybe just you the first year. Maybe just you and 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 your leadership team the first year. And then give a testimony about how God changed your life, um, and and how he how he impacted you, uh, how he how he prepared you for Easter. And then invite others along. We do the same with our kids. We have four kids, ages four through ten, and we do our best to explain the purpose of Lent. And then we make an invitation. And sometimes they say, "Yes, I'm up for it." I want to give up my treats or, or, or maybe video games or screens uh, this, this time around. And sometimes they don't, uh, Georgine. sometimes they don't. And so we go, okay, um, we're just going to give you a, an invitation every year and let you see our life, and then we'll practice it together. And by the time, you know, we get into Holy Week, um, I think everyone can feel the impact. I know our church is beginning to feel the impact as Holy Week is approaching um, because there's a there's a sense that God is at work, He's moving in the hearts of, of of uh, of people throughout the congregation, and so there's a growing anticipation. Um, if you're practicing as a family, practicing as a congregation for 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 Holy Week and for Easter,
2: throughout the book, the good of giving up, um, you include testimonies of ordinary people that I think help us to see perhaps ourselves um, having an experience that's that's meaningful. Uh, mm-hmm. Why did you think it was important, and I certainly think it is to include other people's stories and testimonies of what this season. Um, did for them as they uh, in, were intentional in anticipating Easter weekend.
4: You know, I, I think it helps us get our heads and hearts around. Uh, you know, what is it like to practice Lent? It helps us imagine what it mm-hmm. could be like for us. Um, one of my favorite stories was um, a story that surprised me. But but I when I when I asked people in my church, I, hey, I'd like your testimony for Lent. Someone was visiting that day, and they sent me their testimony about how the Lord called them to give up makeup for Lent, and this was at a time when when she was uh, uh, 20 years old and very much into beauty culture, and um, she was called to sort of lay down all of the, all of the boobs, all of the, all of the, the, the makeup, the lipstick, um, and she even got comments like, wow, you look tired or you look different. But what she was able to find was that uh, there was love from the Father that she wouldn't have been able to internalize were it not for... Um, the the emptiness, the empty hands, and the 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 experience of not having makeup um, that she had, but um, and and it's it's a, a, a testimonies really help us see just the surprising ways that God works in people's lives, and just how you know how ordinary it can be, but also how life changing it can be. Um, another testimony that a lot of people have told me they really appreciated was um, Karen, who's a leader in our church, talks about how she gave up coffee for Lent one year, expecting that. There was going to be a big spiritual high in replacement of the caffeine buzz, but instead, what she found was that it took a lot longer. It was more of a formation period um, for her to to experience the spiritual payoff of that. So I think it's just it helpful. It normalizes the experience, the frustration, how mundane things can feel can feel, um, and so that testimonies I've come to see. Um, are a very important part of the spiritual journey, hearing other people's stories of Mm -hmm. Jesus changing their life.
2: Yeah, I would absolutely agree. We are very busy, stressed-out people, um, and it may seem overwhelming to think of adding something by subtracting something. Yeah. But how does the the season of Lent help us in our very fast-paced 21st century life?
4: I think what Lent does is it sets the pace um, that we can follow uh, so that we receive the transformation Jesus has for us Ah, uh, transformation in the likeness of Christ is agricultural. It can't be microwaved. It can't be sped up. And so, I think what a lot of us need is we need the good medicine of of slowing down enough, uh, making 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 enough space in our schedules and our appetites, um, and uh, in our worship life for Jesus to fill. Um. So, uh, what what happens over the period of time is year by year. When we begin to slow down by subtracting the distractions, by by subtracting the excess, is that actually there's room then to grow? Uh, there's room in our souls to grow into the likeness of Christ, and there's also more space for Jesus. Just quite frankly, more space in our um, in our in our heads and in our conversations for Jesus Christ um, to to take lordship. Um, and so I I actually I think that it's it, people are definitely surprised. Um, at how uh, there there's some things in their life causing busyness. Mm-hmm. They're actually distracting them from an underlying anxiety, and Lent uh, can 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 give them a pathway to, to transformation from that.
2: We're about two weeks out from uh, from Easter Sunday. Is it too late to set aside what remains, uh, to practice something of an abbreviated version of Lent?
4: It is absolutely not too late. I think Holy Week is, is a—you know, it's how the early Church started. They mm-hmm. started just with Holy Week. Um, so I, I think if you were to even just take a week and just say, Jesus, I'm going to give you this week, and I want you to use it to prepare me for the celebration on Easter Sunday. And, um, you know, give it a try. Give give, uh, give Lenten practices a try for a week and, uh, and talk to your fellow Christians about it, your small group leader about it, and see how it goes. And then maybe next year, um, you'll be ready for the 40-day pilgrimage.
2: Well, a great tool to help you along that journey, either this or next year, The Good of Giving Up, Discovering the Freedom of Lent. The book is published by Moody Publishers and is available in bookstores. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Georgine.
2: Appreciate it very much.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, for the uh, last couple of weeks and through the remainder of this month, we're focusing on Christian schools in our area. And I am so delighted that with us uh, now is the print, the superintendent rather of Cornerstone Christian Academy, Bill Gibbons. Now, Cornerstone offers an elementary and early childhood education uh, campus and a middle school campus. They're teaching students to understand and live with an eternal perspective. ...while maintaining a daily personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And what an advantage for a child to begin with that foundation. Bill Gibbons, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Georgine, it's my pleasure. How are you?
2: I'm doing very well. And I'm excited to spend a little time talking about Cornerstone Christian Academy. Because you all, and I should mention it's an academy for learning and leadership. You all are making a significant contribution to the kingdom of God, the body of Christ, and our community. And we are grateful. Now, for listeners who aren't familiar with Cornerstone, let me give you an opportunity to just describe for us the elementary school, the middle school, and your early childhood education center. Well, the school
5: is probably the most technologically advanced Christian school in the nation. We really want to focus on preparing kids for the future. So we have done things very intentionally uh, in relation to learning and Scripture. We put Jesus Christ first in everything that we do. We integrate His Word into every subject, okay? Okay. From kindergarten all the way up um, through our eighth grade and soon to be high school, we—it's uh, uh, interesting uh, when I say things but we do things intentionally. Uh, in Daniel one eight, uh, he talks about uh, not eating the king's food. He purposed in his heart not to eat the king's food, and you look at the impact that Daniel made mm, on Sabbath Yes, and 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 we're saying we can make the same impact. Okay, our community is an important part of, of what, who we are, and well, we want to raise up young men and women, having them ready for the future for what they're going to experience. And so, we know that when we set our learning goals and our objectives, we knew that technology had to be a part of that. So, we looked at what technology could do to support our learning goals, and so all of our kids from kindergarten through, um, uh, through the eighth grade have their own digital devices, okay? And um, it's not the main tool. Uh, it just supports our learning goals. But uh, the kids are challenged. We we work around what we call the three R's, okay? Rigor, we don't think our kids are challenged sufficiently. We want to challenge our kids. Mm-hmm. And then relationships, we think that uh, relationships are the key, and the model for the relationships is, is Jesus Christ. How did He have relationships with the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and with His disciples, and with all of those who, who knew Jesus? Relationships are critical in the preparation of a child and then relevance. The third R is relevance and very important if we've got to make education relevant. It has to be meaningful. So many kids drop out of school, all right, because it's not relevant. Yeah. It doesn't relate to what their giftedness is, what their passions are. So it's our goal to be able to to build our instruction around the giftedness of the children and their passions, not just one one um, approach serves all kids, not the way it works here.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rigor, relationship, and relevance. I love that. Yeah. I understand that at Cornerstone, um, you know, teachers are an important part of an intentional learning environment, and you invest over 50 hours every year to, to train teachers with the latest research on accelerated learning, the use of technology that supports and enhances, enhances rather the mission and objectives, uh, not only of the school, but of the students.
5: Um, Georgine, we're very research-driven here, and um, the only way you're going to improve the quality of education, what separates an excellent school from a good school, is simply teacher preparation. So um, we spend an enormous amount of time in training and developing our our, our professionals. Um, Right now, we're working on what we call inquiry-based learning and project-based learning, where we can teach kids to work um, how to get along. Uh, taking advantage of their curiosity, teaching our, our teachers how to ask questions and how to have our children think, okay. It's we, we want our children to be able to anticipate, look around corners, uh, to, to challenge them to think. And so, um, uh, we've spent a lot of time on, uh, on being able to um, identify projects that so they can work together on teams. Uh, uh, it was very interesting. We're designing and planning for our high school right now, and the architect that we hired does a lot of work for Mr. Knight of Nike, and he was talking about but Mr. Knight said, you know, I want to develop a modern uh, facility where uh, my space, where my people can get together, collaborate, plan, anticipate, uh, look around corners, and he's describing it. And I ask our architect to come over and look at our schools, because we have the same philosophy. We do it the same way. And so... Uh, we we think that the world that, that, that we're living in today, uh, uh, that for the most part, we're not challenging kids and preparing them for that world. So our goal is to develop young men and women, to have them become strong, strong Christian leaders who not only know Jesus Christ, but have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and have the, the skills to be able to compete above and beyond what most individuals would have. Mm. Have them ready to go into the workforce immediately or go on to to advanced education. So it's critical. Um, That's what the Lord expects
2: of us. Absolutely. One of the things that I appreciate about uh, Cornerstone Christian Academy for Learning and Leadership is uh, the emphasis on helping young people live with an eternal perspective. They maintain a daily personal relationship with Christ. And for a young person to begin their life in an academic setting, with that uh, capacity to think uh, with an eternal perspective, what an advantage that young person has as a young adult, as a parent, as an employee uh, moving forward.
5: Well, you said it, Georgie, it, it is, okay? And
2: that's why in our,
5: our 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 mission and vision statement, we we took nearly a half a year to, to define that. And, and partnering with parents is critical, all right? So uh, in our statement of faith, we outline what we believe in, and um, and then our parents, uh, if they don't agree with it, uh, then they have to talk with me. And if the differences are so great, then um, then it's probably not our school, but uh, vast, overwhelming majority of our parents greatly value the fact that uh, we reinforce and support the values that they have at home, and uh, we're a team. We're working together. these kids are God's children. He's given all of us gifts. It's our job and responsibility to find those gifts and the passion that they have and match that passion and that gift and work with the parents to um, give them opportunities to, to uh, participate in that. And so we model our education around that. And uh, that's a tough thing to do. It's not easy. It's difficult for teachers. That's why the training is
2: so Yeah, difficult. yeah. Well, to stay on the cutting edge of technology to help young people to know how to use the technology in a way that is for their good and uh, will will serve as a tool uh, in the way that God has gifted and talented them to move forward is such a, a blessing to them personally. And I think to the broader community as they become uh, part of as adults, part of the community. Uh, spreading out throughout the, uh, the the metro area. We are so delighted to uh, take the time to talk about and to shine a light on Cornerstone Christian Academy for learning and leadership. I know you are uh, expanding to include a high school in the short term. Uh, what's the best way for our listeners who might be interested in learning more about the uh, elementary and middle school campuses now and perhaps in the future looking ahead to the high school?
5: Probably the best is just to go to our website. We just launched it. our new new website, and you can get through it. Uh, It's uh, it's ccak12.net, ccak12.net. Okay, and it will go more in-depth, and uh, uh, and, and you can be in contact with me personally through that website as well. One other thing I wanted to say. uh, Please. When we talk about relevance, um, uh, we've, um, we've done a lot of things here that are incredible. We teach biblical entrepreneurship here. We piloted a program with Patricia Gay. Oh, yes, now.
2: Nehemiah Project.
5: And the Nehemiah Project, that's correct. And mm-hmm. we're the first school to implement that. And we had um, uh, the head of the Multnomah Bible uh, School uh, business uh, school, and then we had several entrepreneurs serve as judges, and um, and we had our 6th, 7th, and 8th graders uh, uh, take classes, and that uh, was an elective. And we had about we had to close it down. We had 30 kids that wanted to. to we dropped it. We can only take uh, 22. But uh, part of their there they learned how to use in God's economy what money needs and how to use it, and and how to advance the kingdom by by you know, through that. Um, and uh, they had to write a business plan, and then uh, the 10 best were selected. And then uh, they had to present in front of a large audience of parents and um, other people. And um, uh, at midway through, after about uh, four or five presentations, the uh, the uh, Mr. Sellers of a, of MoMA uh, stood up and said, "'My gosh, I, I cannot believe that you can have six seventh and eighth graders prepare a presentation as qu- the quality of this. I have college students that can do this. And then shortly after that, one of the entrepreneurs stood up and said, "Um, these are fundable businesses right now, and said, "Um, I'm enrolling today. How do I do it? (laughs) Well,
2: that's quite a a compliment. Well, Bill Gibbons, thank you for your dedication, your leadership, and for taking the time to talk with us today about Cornerstone Christian Academy.
5: I love it. It's my favorite subject next to Jesus, but that's one (laughs) and the same,
2: right? (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right. God bless. God bless. Again, Cornerstone Christian Academy for Learning and Leadership. They're located in Vancouver. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week on Wednesday, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Katie Boyce. She's the founder and principal of Advanced Christian Academy. If you're not familiar with Advanced, I'd encourage you to listen in because we're going to talk about their core values and what puts Christian uh, in the... Uh, the practice of Advanced Christian Academy in terms of their uh, uh, curricula, their priorities and relations uh, with families and their students. So Katie Boyce will join us again. She's the founder and principal of Advanced Christian Academy. On Thursday, we'll talk with Steve Adams. The book is titled Children's Ministry on Purpose, a Purpose-Driven Approach to Lead Kids to Spiritual Health. And uh, I'll ask him to comment on a survey that uh, was recently published suggesting that parents have a different view of what the purpose and function of children's ministry ought to be from those who are actually administering it. So perhaps you can help to bridge that gap. And then uh, we're going to talk with Michaela uh, Panato. She's with the Portland Adventist Academy, uh, one of the Christian schools in our community. We'll give you some insight into what they are doing. And then on Friday, we'll lighten up and look forward to another of our interviews with local um, Christian schools from our community. Well, I wanted to end with something that's a bit edifying. uh, Darren Mulligan might be familiar to some of you. He describes himself as a blasphemer who uh, became a follower of Christ. Well, Darren Mulligan ran away to America to pursue a career in rock and roll music and to escape his responsibilities at home in Ireland. His then girlfriend was, uh, he says, struggling with an eating disorder, coping with the loss of her father to alcoholism When the Irish rocker made what he calls a pretty selfish decision to leave his small town to seek fame for all the wrong reasons. I know I said this was a positive story, but hang with me. Uh, He says, My now wife Heidi was in a very difficult place and I was a coward, so I ran away to America. The We Are Messengers singer told... um, Uh, Fox News that when I got to America, playing rock shows every night of the week in different cities, different states, it was from that moment that everything went downhill for me. Little did Mulligan know that while he was uh, living a very lonely life in America, his future wife, Heidi, had found her way to God. God rescued Heidi, and then I come home a couple of years later, a couple of years, mind you. I had nothing going for me, he recalled, but then she told me she loved me, and she forgave me, and then I fell in love with Jesus because of the choice uh, and the love of this good woman. Strange how God operates, he says. Well, up until that point, Mulligan said he viewed religion as motions to go through. The singer grew up in a traditional Irish Catholic home, was made to go to Mass and take confession, he said, I never once heard that Jesus Christ could love me or that I could love him. He said, adding, he still struggles with accepting that Jesus can love him despite his failings. And the truth is, that's true of all of us, despite our failings. And we all have them, some more public than others, but we all have them. It is an amazing thing to consider Christ's love for us. But he goes on. I was an adulterer. That was my thing. And a drunk. I was uh, Uh, any amount of things, a blasphemer. I was violent. I was all of these things that saying prayers in some religious setting was never going to set me free from that, he admitted. I've done things that I can't even tell you. I have seen things with my eyes and been involved with things that if you really knew me, you wouldn't speak to me. Or maybe you would because you know who Jesus is and he kind of specializes in dealing with people like me, end quote. Well, Mulligan has taken it upon himself to share God's message of love and acceptance through his music as a Christian artist, a label uh, he does not shy away from. I am a Christian daddy, a Christian husband, a Christian racquetball player. I'm a Christian voter. I am a Christian gardener. Whatever I do, I do it in his name, he says. I have no issue with brands that say, you know what? I'm an artist who believes in Christ, but we're not Christian artists. I get why you say that, but I'm not ashamed of him. What he has done for me, I will never in my life ever turn around, uh, say, I'm not a Christian anything. He concluded, everything I do is imbued with his goodness, the fact that I can breathe today. I'm a Christian breather, he says of himself. I don't deserve to have breath in my bones, but he said, "Uh, you can breathe today, Darren. And he said, you can go and hold your wife's hand today. And so I'm a Christian hand holder, and that's a stupid thing to say, but it's the truth. Well, shortly after the interview with Mulligan from Fox News, We Are Messengers was involved in a car accident. That was the 26th of March. According to a rep, the band's bus collided with a vehicle that was stopped on the side of the highway south of Atlanta, Georgia. Both the vehicles burst into flames, and We Are Messengers managed to escape the burning bus, but the passenger in the second vehicle did not survive. Mulligan says, we are well and miraculously so. Our prayers are with the family of the individual who lost his life. Um, just a, a heartwarming story about a young man who essentially trashed his life pursuing the American dream of fame and fortune, was in a successful uh, rock band. And somewhere along the way, through all of the debauchery he describes himself having been involved in, he finds Jesus Christ through a girlfriend he abandoned some two years earlier. It's always encouraging to me to uh, to hear stories that Christ is doing the same thing he's done from the very beginning, forgiving sinners of their sin and reconciling them to the Father. That certainly is my story, although the details are different. And for those of you who know Christ, my guess is that's your story as well. That's the greatest story that's been told ever since the resurrection, when Jesus uh, completed the work that the Father had given him and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he makes intercession, a big word for he prays for us. He speaks with the Father about us. Uh, He continues to be concerned Uh, Over us and to protect us and to guide us. He left His Holy Spirit so that we would not be alone. Uh, And the indwelling Holy Spirit helps us to understand His Word and to understand His will and His way. And what a gift He has given us. And this young man, Darren Mulligan's story, is being repeated in hundreds of thousands and millions of lives all across the globe. In some cases, they're not young people seeking fame and fortune in America, driving a bus and um, in a rock band. There are others who are just seeking the opportunity to worship him openly but find that there is opposition to that in a country where religious faith, Christian uh, faith, fidelity to the scriptures, and uh, servants of Christ are not uh, permitted. But this story is being repeated all over the world today. It will be again tomorrow because Christ's sacrifice for us was sufficient to redeem all who would come to him, believing in, uh, in his name and following him. What a great, encouraging story that despite everything else that's going on in the world today, the hand-wringing, the fretting, the concern about tomorrow, that God is still sovereign and the work that Jesus completed on the cross is still being worked out in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls all over the world. Once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to uh, talk with Katie Boyce, who's the founder and principal of Advanced Christian Academy, where they're helping to equip young people for a life of faith with the kind of academic rigor that parents are looking for, so looking forward to a conversation with her. As I'd mentioned earlier in the week, we had anticipated a conversation with David Brog, saving Israel from the lies of the left, the definitive truth about the Arab-Israeli conflict. He has been called into a meeting, I understand, with the vice president, so he's not going to be able to join us. We'll reschedule uh, that conversation for another occasion. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As we sign off, I want to thank uh, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for producing and engineering a portion of today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook.